I'm John Barrett Ingalls, and this is The How, The Why. Presented by 1888. Every week, we connect with artists, authors, and innovators in the world of publishing and literature to discuss their creative process and creative purpose and explore the evolution of the industry. 1888 serves as a regional catalyst for the preservation, presentation, and promotion of cultural heritage and literary arts. Let's get connected. Hello and welcome to the How, the Why, brought to you by 1888. My name is John Barrett Ingalls, and today we are connected with Benjamin Percy, award-winning author, uh, most recently with a novel that came out last year, The Deadlands, and then uh, just this past month, a collection of essays on fiction called Thrill Me, which was phenomenal. Uh, uh, Benjamin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Hey, thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so, yeah, I just I just absorbed all of Thrill Me, and I got to say, like I I love books on craft from authors. It, it it inspires me. It makes me want to go and erase everything, delete everything I've ever written, and start again. Um, what was it that inspired you to put that collection together? I've taught for 14 years and recently stepped away from the classroom to write full time. And that, you know, I was gladdened and saddened by that decision. Uh, teaching makes me feel as though I'm earning my oxygen hmm. in a way that writing does not. Uh, writing feels to me like a, a selfish activity. And this is a way of me taking, you know, my toolbox, my arsenal, and and sharing it with uh, aspiring authors or, or advanced authors, even uh, you know that I've I've heard of several editors who have picked up the book as well, and uh, you know some old colleagues you know, as well as as students, uh, and even people who are just obsessive readers. So you know I, I don't know who this book will find, but the hope is that you know it lights a torch inside them and it changes their way of engaging with story, whether that's uh, a short story or a novel or a memoir or uh, a film or a television series or a comic book, because there's really a, a cross genre applicability to everything that I'm talking about. So it's just, you know, it's, it's me uh, trying to pay it forward because I have been, I, you know, I've, I've gained a lot from, from the ghosts of, of uh, workshops past. Mm. I have, uh, you know, I have all those teachers on my shoulder whispering in my ear, and some of them are whispering, you suck, and <laughs> others are whispering, you know, you can do this. Uh, you know, I've stolen maybe seven things from this professor and ignored these 20 other things that, that he or she told me, and this other professor I had, you know, I took three things from them, three really important things, and then I ignored the rest of the things that they hollered at me about, and that's what happens to every writer. You know, over time, you, you, you know, from the books you read, from the classes you take, you just acquire your own voice and your own, uh, you know, your own toolbox and, uh, 
share it with the next generation. So this is this is me trying to share, uh, you know, my my advice with the next generation of, of writers, but also just to get people jazzed. You know, there's I hope an energy like a fire running through this that that lights a torch inside you. Absolutely. I mean, it did for me, and it's it's great. You did this. Uh, kind of what you were talking about with, with your own professors and teachers. You did this thing of, uh, here are some rules, here are some guidelines, and take them and make it your own. Like, you know, the, right. the, the, there, there is no set structure of you have to, you know, it's not like building a, a microchip where this has to be here and that has to be there. This, there there's still a, a freedom to it, and you, you embrace that, and I, I love that. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as Captain Jack Sparrow says, there are no rules, only guidelines. I, you yourself, um, and this is an interesting topic to get into, and it may be a, a tired topic. I had the same conversation with Jonathan Latham. This concept of you as a uh, genre writer. And I know we get a little bit of that in uh, Thrill Me as well, talking about we're kind of at this point where where genre, the line of what a genre is, is is blending and, and bleeding and disappearing and fading and, and cross-pollinating. Um, but when you first started attempting writing, was there... Was there a, a urge to follow that path to be a genre writer and then started opening up into just being a writer? Yeah, you know, I, I grew up on genre, as most people do. I grew up on westerns by Zane Grey and Louis L'Amour. I grew up on uh, Dragonlance and Forgotten Realms fantasy novels. I grew up on horror novels by Stephen King and Peter Straub and Anne Rice and Shirley Jackson and Dean Koontz. Uh, I grew up on spy thrillers. I grew up on sci-fi. And that's what I wanted to write. But when I stepped into that first creative writing classroom, uh, the professor went through the syllabus, and the final thing that he said was, no genre. <laughs> and he looked like a mannequin, you know, he was completely hairless and had a dead expression. And when I put up my hand, he he leveled his gaze at me and said, yes. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean by this old no genre thing? Because I'd come in there to write stories about vampires and dragons and robots with laser eyes and barbarians with woolly underpants. <laughs> and he said, I mean, no vampires, no dragons, no robots with laser eyes, no barbarians with woolly underpants. <laughs> very earnestly, I threw up my hand again and said, but what else is there? Right. And thereafter, I discovered what else there was. I had never heard of Flyner O'Connor. I didn't know who Raymond Carver was. I had never read Sherman Alexie or James Baldwin or Alice Monroe. And I fell in love with literary fiction, but I never fell out of love with genre fiction. And for the next four or five years, I heard that every time I walked into a classroom. No genre. No genre, no genre. And plot was truly treated like a dirty word. Mm. And, you know, I realized a few things happened simultaneously that helped me realize that I kind of lost my way 
Uh, one of them was my wife. Um, you know, I gave her a book. I said, you got to read this. And she pushed it back to me and said, you take the fun out of reading. And she said that because the entire book was, it looked corralled in barbed wire because I had scrawled so many notes inside of it. <laughs> you know, just like breaking down sentences or breaking down scenes or talking about metaphors or whatever. You know, there's just all these annotations all throughout. And she said, you take the fun out of reading. And she was right. I, I, you know, I used to read, this sounds really romantic, but almost every night when growing up, my family would be sprawled out in the living room and we'd all be reading. And by and large, we were reading mass market paperbacks with mm. embossed titles. Um, and I read for pure joy, for pure escapism. You know, I turned those pages so swiftly they made a breeze on my face. All I wanted to know was what happens next. And what happens next had become nearly irrelevant to me. So I, you know, I was looking at different authors and, and recognizing that, you know, you, you could occupy a kind of gray zone, these shadow lands in between literary and genre fiction. That's what people like Margaret Atwood or Kate Atkinson or Octavia Butler, or Ray Bradbury, or Susanna Clarke are doing. Look at Dennis Lehane, look at Peter Straub, look at Cormac McCarthy, who writes right. books that could be labeled crime, or Western, or post-apocalyptic right. horror, or literature with a capital L. And so I became most interested in just, in, in sort of straddling, like, two worlds, you know, trying to write something that was both artfully told and compulsively readable. But it was, it was, it's conscious. It's not, it's, it's the, the marriage of the class and the, the passion, the, uh, it, it seems, you know, from, from reading your work, it seems like it, it there is like, our, I, I am going to marry all these elements together. Yeah, just take the best of both worlds and real recognize that, you know, there's there's been this since the with the rise of with the rise of the MFA program with the academization of writing. There's been kind of this circling of the wagons where all these people said this is what's good. Literary realism is what's good, yeah. and we banish <laughs> anything that reeks of genre from our you know, hallowed walls. And really that's, it's, that's bullshit. You know, that's, these are phantom barricades. Uh, it's a, it's a false taxonomy. Um, you know, Margaret Atwood is writing sci-fi. Mm -hmm. It's taken her a long time to admit that, but she's writing sci-fi and, and Cormac McCarthy is writing, you know, the most exquisite sentences you'll ever read, but he's also, you know, he's writing post-apocalyptic literature. Right. Uh, so is Emily St. Mandel. And, and uh, you know, I'm just, the only, the only sort of designation that I'm concerned with is, is it good? Like, exactly. Is fiction that sucks and fiction that doesn't suck. I'm interested in the fiction that doesn't suck. What was the first story that you, that you wrote? Do you remember? And do you remember at what age? Ah. Uh, I mean, there's all those things that you scribble, uh, you know, throughout elementary school. And, and the, the one, that, though, that stands out 
my, in my head is <clears throat> the one that I was first truly proud of uh, it was Conan versus the skateboarders. <laughs> that was written for uh, Mrs. O'Shea. And I think it was maybe eighth grade English class. And anyways, I, it was about Conan traveling through an interdimensional portal to the present day and getting into a battle with some skateboarders. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the title. Right. <laughs> and Mrs. O'Shea loved it so much she had me read it to the class. So that was my, that was my shining moment in middle school. What was a moment that you knew that's what you wanted to go to school for and study? Uh, well, that didn't come all at once. It just wasn't like on my radar that I could do that for a living. I grew up in the boonies and, you know, most of the people in my neighborhood were ranchers. Uh, and it just like to be a writer, just even though I was reading like two or three books a week, I was really a voracious reader. I just never clicked that I could do that. Never met a writer until I was in college. Um, and I wanted to be, this sounds ridiculous given that, you know, that seemed unavailable to me that this did. I wanted to be Indiana Jones. <laughs> I wanted to be Harrison Ford. And, you know, this was in part engendered by my family because my father and mother are just obsessive history nuts. And they're, you know, they're crazy about geology and they're crazy about archaeology. I mean, I'm not, I should, that's not exaggerated language. I feel like I need to go even further to say like, you know, they're completely obsessed. It's like a religion to them. And every single vacation growing up, I'm not, again, this is not an exaggeration. Every single freaking vacation was us throwing a bunch of like picks and uh, trowels and shovels into the back of the truck and driving off to some dry canyon or some, you know, sprawling section of desert or some mountainside and, you know, excavating either like a petrified log or, um, you know, going projectile point hunting or looking for rock art. Like this is, <laughs> this is my child. So, you know, it was, it was cultivated in that environment. And then I went on several digs, you know, just on through the Oregon museum of science and industry through university of Oregon. I spent two summers in the bush, uh, and then went to college with, you know, <clears throat> with an invitation essentially from the anthropology archeology span department and had that as my declared major. And then the dream just began to dissolve. Uh, you know, I recognized that there was no lost Ark of the Covenant waiting right. for me out. <laughs> there, were, there was, there was, you know, there were no Nazis to do battle with. Uh, there were certainly no beautiful women. There were no women. Uh, it was just <clears throat> the only thing that stayed true was the snakes. There were a lot of snakes. So that that dissolved, and then writing sort of filled that vacuum. I had an existential crisis of sorts. I went to, I retreated to the wilderness. I worked at Glacier National Park. So while all my buddies were working in New York, um, you know, all these investment banker gigs and such that they were interning for, I uh, was a gardener at Glacier National Park. And uh, I started keeping a journal for the first time in my life. And that's when <coughs> I met my then girlfriend, now wife, who, after I wrote her all these lascivious love letters and poems, said, you should be a writer. And I said, okay. Sure. Yeah, if you say so. <laughs> then school came afterward? Yeah, that's when I walked into that, that creative writing mm. workshop, the semester that followed that summer. And that's when I learned that you couldn't write about barbarians with fully underpants in academia. Uh, I should say, though, that you know, I, f I do feel like the, the 
tide has shifted that, you know, there's a kind of avengerization of literature going on sure. uh, because of people like Jonathan Lethem, who you've interviewed for the show mm-hmm. and people like Karen Russell and people like Kevin Brockmeyer and people like Kelly Link, people like Michael Chabin, you know, it's becoming much more acceptable uh, to, you know, have a werewolf or uh, a Zeppelin or an exploding helicopter or a witch in your story. Um, but there are plenty of places that I travel to this day. And I walk on the campus and, you know, I'm basically told by the students that, you know, they wished they could write genre. Uh, and I've been told, too, that, you know, some faculty are sort of spurning me as a result of the conversation I'm having. Um, trying to encourage, <laughs> trying to encourage, you know, more orcs in the classroom. <laughs> I, I studied screenwriting in college and I remember specifically I had like four big ideas. And when it came time to like, all right, we're, we're going to start working on our, our projects and everybody pitched their project and every idea I pitched, I was met with it. Oh, that's too big. You can't do that. No, that's, yeah, yeah. that's, that's too like, you're creating this dystopic society. You can't do that. It's too big. Let's just keep it simple. Find a simple story to tell. It's like, I don't want to tell simple stories. Yeah. And I'm still working on those ideas. They still I haven't left me. I can, you know, I can't escape it. Um, now let's, let's talk a little bit about this movement to being a professional writer. You started off with two books of, of short stories. Was there, there, uh, uh, were the novels in work at that time, or was it just start small, get these out, and then slowly? Well, I think grow? that's you know that, that's good advice is to start small. Hmm. But you know, I mean, you write a short story. Not to, I love short stories. I think they're. I don't think they're easy to write. But compared to novels, they are easy to write. You just know, time, just time. Short, yeah, just time and all the things you can get wrong in a novel compared to, uh, you know, there's plenty you can get wrong in a short story as well. But it takes a lot less time to fix and. And a lot less time to hammer out. It's like building a treehouse compared to a cathedral or mm-hmm. something. So, I wrote four failed novels while I was writing those short stories, and uh, I had to write them uh, to to figure out how to write a big book. Right. Uh, I think almost every writer you encounter has that same story that they have these four or five or more books that are in the drawer in the junkyard. And, uh, you know, I hope that mine are never uncovered because they're pieces of crap. Uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I finally broke through when I had to teach a novel writing class. That was at University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, And I felt like a fraud. Uh, you know, I'm teaching a novel writing class. I've never published a novel. So I really stepped up my game. You know, there's nothing like standing in front of a bunch of people and having to sound smart. Uh, puts the fear of God in you. So I did the same thing that I had done in grad school and trying to figure out how to write short stories. Uh, and this is an exercise that I gave to my grad students because um, it was incredibly helpful to me. I would read a story by someone that I thought was, you know, let's say ex- exceptionally good at uh, structure, like Flannery O'Connor. Mm. So read a short story by Flannery O'Connor five times. And do it five times because then you're emotionally disengaged from it. Like it has no hold on you anymore. Uh, and you know it in and out. You recognize every thematic element and component part. So read it five times. And then the sixth time you read it, go through with a yellow legal tablet and map it out paragraph by paragraph. 
And, you know, maybe in paragraph one, you say something like, uh, character A introduced as jealous and spiteful, which is every Flannery O'Connor character, uh, via dialogue. Paragraph two, theme introduced via description of setting and so on. And then I would, as an exercise, try to write a story based off that skeleton that bore no resemblance to the original. Now, for whatever reason, I had not done that. You know, I did that maybe three or four times with short stories. And then I was like, it just clicked. I knew how to write a short story, but I hadn't done the same with novels. I don't know why. And, and that summer, the summer prior to having to teach that novel writing course, I did that. I read all of these novels that I admired and then reread them. So essentially it was three reads because I'd read the novel before I read it again, tried to emotionally disengage myself from it. And then I mapped the thing out. Hmm. And I don't think it's any coincidence that uh, a few months later I sold the wilding uh, my novel to Grey Wolf. Um, so it's that kind of just strenuous diligence uh, analysis that has, you know, I think really paid off for me um, in that I don't really believe in, you know, I believe in the ether. I, know, I mean, I just know there's something in that it zone you go to where, you know, the the words and the pages are just spilling out of you right. sort of unconsciously. Like I'm not disregarding that, but where that like, other thing takes in, over. Yeah, yeah. But there is a, a, a very important left brain imposition that has to occur over mm -hmm. that right brain activity if you're going to clean, clean all that stuff up and make it shine. Yeah, you talk a little bit about, in, in Thrill Me, you talk about uh, Picasso trained as this realist painter. Uh, you know, these, uh, Patti Smith was this phenomenal poet, and yet they can still let the art take over, but they still had to have those tools in place. Right. Yeah. And you know, the same thing applies to screenwriting. Like you, I, you know, you lay out that formula for people and you say, okay, here's your exposition. Here's your inciting incident that occurs on page 15. Here's your plot point one, which occurs on page 25, uh, and so on. Here's your dark night of the soul. And pe people are very resistant to that, you know, especially when I'm talking about novels. Uh, and I recognize very well that, uh, movie is not a novel, but they have, you know, I'd say by and large, they have the same bones. And I, I point out that, you know, this superstructure, this formula, this prescription has made movies as varied as, you know, this, this is Princess Bride and this is also Rocky IV. Mm. Uh, and this is also Lawrence of Arabia. Um, so, you know, just like training yourself in that. And then, you know, once you come to understand it, then you can make a movie like, uh, you know, 21 grams or, or, or babble or requiem for a dream or, you know, you're sort of snapping that structure over your knee, mm. but you can't just experiment without, you know, a foundation of knowledge. You, you can't, you can't, it's, it's not meaningful if you don't know what you're doing. It's just, uh, you know, sort of chaos. And that's what I felt like I saw in a lot of, um, you know, workshops where people were trying to explicate their work and make it sound, you know, like an intellectual powerhouse and this aesthetic powerhouse. And there were a lot of, there were a lot of, you know, pretty sentences and glowing metaphors strewn throughout, but I don't really think they knew what the hell they were doing when it came to putting together a story. Do you think it's, I mean, I get anything is possible. This is going to, I already know the answer to this question, but is it possible to just get it out, like vomit it all out and then, <laughs> try to put the foundation underneath it or 
mean, everybody works differently, but everybody works differently. There's no one right way to do it. Uh, you know, Dan Sean, who's one of my favorite writers, uh, his short story collection among the missing is, uh, you know, a must have in every, every library. And, um, uh, await your reply is a phenomenal novel. And that guy does not outline, hmm. uh, if, for every short story that he writes, every 15 page short story, he told me that he writes sometimes, you know, 130 pages just to figure out what the story's about. And, uh, you know, it's, that works for him. Um, I, my brain doesn't work that way. So what, I've tried to work that way. And, and I had four books turned to dust in my hands. Right. So, you know, I'm more the Lego block writer. I'm so more the guy who has, uh, an outline. You start, my, you start with an idea, you get this concept, you, yeah. you get, yeah. you get kind of the world and then, then what do you do? Like kind of take us through your, your process. So, you know, here's the idea, post-apocalyptic reimagining of the Lewis and Clark saga, right? Or here's another idea, you know, post nine 11 reimagining of the werewolf myth. You know, there's, there's two of my novels right mm -hmm. there, Deadlands and Red Moon. So I rip off a sheet of paper from my kids, Melissa and Doug Art Easel. <laughs> I tack it to my office wall. And, you know, I have my sort of banner statement about the idea at the top. Well, on the left side, I then have my characters who come to life. And I've got little Wikipedia entries on all those characters all on the left-hand column. And I might even cartoon them. And then once I figure out who they are, I figure out what they want. Once I figure out what they want, you know, your goal as a writer is to sort of act like this cruel God and set obstacles in the way of that desire. So that's, that's when you have the first stirrings of plot. So if you imagine like those Wikipedia entries on the left side, now I've got these little plot threads, uh, with obstacles connected to them that are tracking across the page. So there's the next step. The step after that is once I figured out sort of everybody's through line, I have to figure out how they all coordinate when it comes to chapter breaks. So I go through and kind of like sheet music, I will do upticks and downticks. Hmm. So if a moment is a crescendo, you know, like a major action sequence or something, I'll have an uptick. If it's a moment of emotional repose, you know, where the character is, I don't know, staring out the window at the tulips stuttering in the breeze and having some sort of, you know, epiphanic orgasm, then, you know, it's a downtick. And, uh, I go through with the upticks and the downticks, and then I have another sheet of paper that I tack beneath that, and that's when I've got the single thread where I'm figuring out the chapter breaks. And I want there to be like a variation of upticks and downticks so that it looks like a seismograph or a cardiogram. I call it the suspensometer, <laughs> right? So it's up and down, up and up and up and down in a way that's like, uh, you know, a uh, topographic map of, uh, you know, Colorado, not Iowa. Sure. And and the idea is that <clears throat> I'm writing this all in pencil because once I actually start to hammer, once I actually put my fingers on the keyboard, things are going to change. They always do. And I haven't figured out every beat either. You know, I'm uh, the, maybe the better way to think about it, just to keep throwing metaphors at you as a constellation where I've got like all these stars going. I know I'm moving towards them, but there's a lot of sort of black space in between and I'm, I'm filling it in as I go along, filling in the constellation. So it's, you know, it's still, there's still that act of discovery. Right. I was going to say, are there elements of surprise and, yeah. and accidents or sometimes it's like, Oh, you know what? That whole, the whole way that I thought this was going to turn out, that's not, that's just not going to work for me anymore. 
you know, I scrap it. I give myself, I give myself permission to do that. But just, it's like a, it's just so, it's reassur- psychologically reassuring to know to have a roadmap. And then once you're actually at the keyboard, and once you're actually putting it down, how conscious are you of the the, the words, the writing, the language, the structure of sentence, the, or are you just trying to get it down in that first draft, just get the story down in that first draft? Uh, well, it depends. Uh, I used to get really hung up on that. Um, now that I'm writing comic books and screenplays, um, I feel a lot looser because, um, you know, my reader, the reader of a comic book is my primary audience is the artist. You know, I'm writing for the artist. So most people aren't going to see anything that I write for that artist. They're just going to see the dialogue that I write and they're going to see the narration that I write. But I'm writing big blocks of prose that describe, you know, what's happening in this panel, right. what's happening in the layout of this page. And I don't have to worry as much. I'm just conveying information and conveying atmosphere. Um, I don't have to worry as much about, you know, being precious with my language. And it's been really helpful to me, actually. Um, when it comes to me finding flow and pushing forward on novels, um, you know, giving myself permission to write those crappy sentences so that I can go back then and, you know, just after getting through the mechanics of storytelling, get back and refine everything and polish it to a glow. You said earlier, we were talking about your family all sitting together and and reading and and that you started off as a voracious reader and, and, from reading through me and from even just talking to you, it's, it's clear that that is something that is still present in your life. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that you probably read uh, well into the double digits of books every year. I throw out a lot of books too, I have to say. <laughs> Not making it all the way through. Yeah, no, I've just given. I'm a very impatient reader now. How do you balance the time? Like, how do you, how do you, how is your time managed for writing? and reading. What does a day look like for you? Uh, well, you know, I, I feel like I need to track back a little bit, um, just to, because I realized that I have a completely luxurious, uh, lucky situation on my hands right now. And, you know, that was, that was not the case several years ago, the way that, you know, I was teaching a four, four load, mm. uh, you know, grading hundreds of comp, comp, uh, essays, you know, every class had 27 to 30 students and I was working 60 hours a week on my teaching and I had an infant child and we lived in a crappy apartment and, you know, I was making a pot of coffee at 11 PM and writing until 3 AM and then sleeping for five hours and then waking up to prep for my classes. Uh, And then I got a better job and then I got a better job and then I got a better job, you know, jobs that (coughs) would give me a little bit more time to write along with my teaching. And finally I was able to just step away entirely. Um, and if I have to go back to teaching, I won't do so regretfully. Like I, I really do enjoy teaching, but I'm, I'm happy to have the space that I do right now just to play with my imaginary friends full time. So the way it works <coughs> right now, if I'm not traveling anyway, is that, you know, I get the kids on the bus by 7 a.m. I make my coffee and come downstairs. I write until 3.30 or 4 when I get home. And uh, then I'm a dad and a husband for the next four to five hours. And then we get him in bed. And then I usually am trying to read 
uh, for the rest of the night until, you know, 11 or midnight, uh, or, you know, hanging out with my wife, binge watching Netflix or whatever. Sure. And I always, you know, I'm, I mean, it's impossible for me to sort of deactivate my brain. So I'm usually taking notes in a legal tablet or something while I'm watching a movie or TV. It's one of my many, you know, many annoying habits. And, uh, <laughs> and, and then, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to create the, like the most boring life possible for myself because that's, that's how I get the best writing done. Right. Like I try to, I write in the same space, the same schedule every day. And there's no writer such thing as writer's block. Like when it's just clock in clock out like that, it used to be, I was trying to write whenever I had a chance. And now it's like, I sit down at this time, I clock in, I get up at that time, I clock out. And sometimes because of just the chaos of writing comic books, um, you know, it's like having a gun to your head. Oh, I have to, you know, eight o'clock at night, I'm back at the keyboard and I'm writing for another four or five hours. So Mm -hmm. I put in over the past, this week was a pretty good week, but the three weeks prior to this, I put in 60 and 70 hour weeks just because of comic book deadlines. That's unsustainable, obviously, but sometimes you just got to do it. So you're doing, you're working, this is for uh, Green Arrow? I write Green Arrow, I write Teen Titans. Titans. I write, and I also write James Bond now. So that's actually, because Green Arrow comes out twice a month, the others come out monthly. That's four uh, comics a month, which is four novellas a month, essentially. Not in terms of the amount of prose that you write, but the story. Every issue is essentially a novella of uh, worth of story. So that'll make your brain explode. Uh, Yeah, so comics have sort of taken over my life. I'm working on screenplays right now. Uh, and banging out like the occasional article, but comics kind of have dominated everything for the past seven months. Hmm. Well, Benjamin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. This is, I, I want to keep going, but, uh, we are at oh. that point. Um, uh, a lot of fun talking to you. Likewise. This has been the, how the why with John Barrett Ingalls. The show is produced by Kevin Stanek and yours truly, with production assistance by Sarah Becker. The How the Why theme music was composed and performed by Dan Record. Please consider supporting 1888 and our mission. Become an 1888 advocate by purchasing our books, participating in our programs, and pledging today. For more information, visit 1888.center. That's 1888.center. I want to remind you all to keep making art. Thank you. <laughs>